Hello, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm David Gottlieb. My guest today is the renowned author, teacher, and Holocaust historian Deborah Lipstadt, who is Dorote Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University. Professor Lipstadt's body of work has led to profound understandings of the Holocaust as a category-defying historical event, but she's also documented how and why claims that the Holocaust never happened have developed from a fringe to a significant and dangerous cultural and pseudo-intellectual phenomenon. To provide just two examples of her numerous works, in Beyond Belief, published in 1986, Professor Lipstadt documented how American journalists, striving for balance and objectivity, buried coverage of the emerging horrors being perpetrated against Jews in Europe. With her Denying the Holocaust, published in 1993, Professor Lipstadt became a leading authority on the emergence of denial in academia and beyond. Her challenge to the pseudo-scholarship of Holocaust denial led to her being charged with libel by the British Holocaust denier David Irving, and the subsequent trial in the British courts delivered a devastating blow to claims that the systematic slaughter of six million European Jews never happened. She chronicled the lawsuit in her 2005 book, History on Trial, My Day in Court with David Irving. A theme that runs through Professor Lipstadt's work is the dynamic and essential relationship between history and memory, and the need to uncover and preserve the truth in the face of deconstructionist and relativist claims that there is no such thing. Her latest book is Holocaust, an American Understanding, published by Rutgers University Press. Here, Professor Lipstadt documents how an understanding of the devastating breadth and systematic horror of the Holocaust not only emerged in America, but changed the way America saw itself and conducted itself. I'm delighted to have the chance to discuss Holocaust and American understanding with my guest, Professor Deborah Lipstadt. Professor Lipstadt, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, David. Professor Lipstadt, what, what was the impetus for this book? Well, it was really, I was asked to write it. It's part of a series that's at uh, being uh, published by Rutgers, Keywords in Jewish Studies. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the editors, Deborah Dashmore of the University of Michigan, uh, came to me and said, look, you're the person to write this book. And um, I hadn't really thought about it, but then I realized that on some level, it was the book or it became the book that I had been planning to write way back in 90, starting in 1996, 97, when David Irving sued me for libel. It was the book I was getting ready to write, um, and so I came back to it uh, approximately 20 years later. I see. Uh, You're one of the world's foremost scholars on the Holocaust. What did you learn about the Holocaust during the researching and writing of this book? There are many, I'm very grateful, there are many um, great scholars of the Holocaust, historians of different areas, uh, I have uh, really focused in great measure, not solely, but in great measure on American responses and American understanding, which is what I do in this book. Uh, what I really explore in this book is how America has interpreted, understood the Holocaust, both in an intellectual and academic arena, but also in a political social, and cultural arena. Yes. Um, 
And and so it's 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 a, it's not a humongous book. It's not a very large book, but I do try to cover all those bases. And I'm uh, as a as a budding scholar of uh, Jewish cultural memory, I found uh, the focus of the book really interesting because it covers a period in which uh, American consciousness of the Holocaust not only shaped an understanding of the Holocaust, but was shaped by it. And so I wanted to ask you. Um, what's particular to and important about an American understanding of the Holocaust, in your view? Now that's a great that's a great question. Well, first of all, what's particular before I turn to the understanding itself is that in many respects the field of Holocaust studies emerged in great measure in the United States. That's not to denigrate in any way the great scholars and historians that have come out of other places, particularly Israel, uh, but the proliferation of courses uh, in, in universities across the United States and North America um, is really something that is immensely significant. Right. A field which didn't exist in the 1970s um, is now, or even in the early 80s, it was a sprinkling of people, right. is now a vibrant and well-developed field, and that is something that's quite striking. Yes. yes. Now, to turn to the substance itself, what I find uh, striking, and of course if I had studied uh, you know, the French understanding of the Holocaust or the British or the uh, whatever, another country, I might have found this as well, um, but the way in which America understood the Holocaust grew to understand, grew to a more sophisticated understanding of the Holocaust. And then the way in which, which America's understanding of the Holocaust was shaped up by developments here. Now that, that's probably, as I said earlier, not unique to America. It happens right. in any cultural context. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's focus on one period. Let's focus on the late 60s early 70s, yes. um, as the baby boomers, my own generation, come of age, are in graduate school, completing graduate school, going off to take uh, faculty positions, often the earliest faculty positions in Jewish studies. Remember, this is also the emergence of Jewish studies. Right. And think back on what's going on in America at the time. It's the politics uh, of cultural and political and social identity, yeah. um, the growth of Africa, the African-American identity, not to, to say there wasn't a, a black identity before, but uh, certainly African-American studies yeah. um, and a far more articulated sense of who we are and what we are um, vis-a-vis the rest of uh, the American society. So too with um, LGBT, well, it wasn't LGBT then, it was really uh, lesbians and gays, That's but right. if you think about Stonewall at the end of the 1960s, mm-hmm. um, and the sense of, of that identity, or Latino, or, or women, the women's movement, a sense by many groups, uh, whether they be uh, sexual groups, sexual orientation, whether it be an issue of gender, whether it be an issue of uh, color, um, ethnic background, religious background, however you want to identify it, but subsets of, the, of American society, subsets, groups that had 
previously uh, sort of made their main effort to integrate as much as possible into the American mainstream and had for ma- in many ways been victimized by the dominant white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture of America. You were free to be like us. Right. right. It was really a melting pot as opposed to the salad bowl, right. um, uh, uh, you know, metaphor. Mm-hmm. And suddenly these groups were saying, not only don't we want that, or we want that, but at the same time that we want that, we want to celebrate our identity. Yeah. Um, we don't see ourselves as victims. We see ourselves as people with a distinct history, heritage, that doesn't mean we're separate and that doesn't mean we're apart and that doesn't mean we're isolated, but it is part of who we are. So Mm -hmm. irrespective of whether it was women, whether it was people who were gay, it was uh, African-Americans and and American Jews and certainly the younger generation of American Jews, uh, this became a a dominant factor. So to go back to Jews and and I'll finish you know, this, it's been a long thought, a long answer to your question. But for um, the American Jews of the uh, baby boom generation, remember, it's also the Vietnam generation. It's right. a generation which is uh, very much taken by the absolutely absurd uh, slogan, which we all proclaimed, or many of us proclaimed, don't trust anyone over 30, mm-hmm. uh, ignoring the fact that we all were fast, very quickly approaching the age of 30. <laughs> That's right, right. Um, but um, it was a sense of we can do things better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So two issues, two political, social, cultural issues become very dominant in, um, or maybe three, in um, Amer- the American uh, Jewish Weltanschauung worldview mm-hmm. of that generation. One is the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and in many respects an interpretation of the Holocaust which is used as a cudgel uh, to say to parents, oh, if it had been us, we would have been able to do so much more. We would have saved those Jews. We wouldn't have been ashamed. We wouldn't have been shocked right. those Jews. Right. That's one. Right. Item two is Soviet Jewry. Mm-hmm. Uh, though eventually that will be something that will be adopted community-wide and will become a, 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 something that unites, however briefly, the American Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, but initially, it was, it was coming from the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. It was coming from young people. It was coming from graduate students who were saying, we have to help these Jews who are uh, anxious to live their lives as Jews. And yeah. initially, it had been sort of, again, keep quiet. It's all being done behind the scenes. Don't make a fuss. Right. And the third um, aspect where you see change, and I think the Holocaust fits into all these things as well, because mm-hmm. the Holocaust again becomes a metaphor for Soviet Jewry, saying to our parents, "You weren't silent. We aren't. You were silent. We aren't going to be silent." Right. Simplistic and historically not viable, but that's what we said. Right. And the third aspect was a uh, a regeneration in a very exciting way of Jewish religious life. Uh-huh. Um, that also came with it with a, a sense of um, a, a, more, a democratization of Jewish life, a looking for alternative ways of expressing one's Jewish identity through Chavurot, through yeah. unaffiliated Minyanim, um, and a sense of saying that we don't have to fit into that post-World War II box 
which is the American synagogue and American religious life. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that was that was part of a greater development. And with that, the Holocaust became something that hadn't been studied extensively by these groups of Jews that they felt they knew only in a very limited way and something also to sort of differentiate them from the previous generation. Right. So it became not only an object of study, but it, as you document, it became a lens through which uh, uh, American Jews began to see themselves and through which also subsequent atrocities around the world were viewed. Yes. Now, I'm not saying the view was always the historically correct or accurate view, Mm -hmm. but yes, that is exactly what happened. And also, in terms of other atrocities, you're absolutely right. Uh, Responding to uh, Bangladesh in the the, uh, late 60s, early 70s, when most of us didn't even know where Bangladesh was. Responding to Cambodia, responding to Vietnam, uh, a feeling that... um, what had happened to our people gave us a particular responsibility to speak up about these other these other right. atrocities, potential genocides, tragedies, whatever you want to call it. Now, it, but interestingly, and as again you point out, uh, the anchoring of the Holocaust in Western historical consciousness, and particularly in American consciousness, was roughly concurrent with and maybe causal of not only the memory boom in uh, in academic scholarship, but it was also concurrent, roughly, with the emergence of pseudo-scholarly denial of the Holocaust. How can we understand the relationship between these two things, between the forces behind increased knowledge about, uh, and very specifically documented knowledge about what happened, and the simultaneously increasing pseudo-scholarly denial of that knowledge? I'm going to give you a strange answer. Okay. I don't think they are related. The first okay. one, the first one was a legitimate, you know, attempt to understand what happened, a legitimate attempt to understand uh, scholarship. Excuse that buzzing in the background. Sure. It won't okay. happen again. Um, the second was really a different phenomenon. Okay. It was a manifestation of um anti-semitism mm-hmm. it was a new way of uh clothing or packaging an old hatred there had been holocaust deniers around for a long time but in the mid 70s possibly prompted now this this you may be correct in, in your connecting the two possibly prompted by the emergence of a increased interest in the Holocaust, attention to the Holocaust, discussion of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Uh, these deniers felt energized. They were initially funded by uh, various sources, and they did something which is quite striking, and um, uh, they adopted a particular, what the police would call MO, modus operandi, uh-huh. um, that unlike deniers from who had been around in the 50s and the 60s uh who generally you know were neo nazis were you know wore nazi like uniforms you had pictures of the show teaching their little kids to give the sigheil salute and things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. uh these uh deniers um adopted the guise of scholars of right. academics. Uh-huh. They rejected the name neo-Nazi. They rejected, adamantly rejected being anti-Semites. 
they adamantly rejected um being um you know anxious to deny the holocaust they called themselves revisionists right we want to revise mistakes in history mm-hmm. our only interest is to correct mistakes in history and they called themselves therefore they created the institute for historical review uh they call they called their journal the journal of historical review um, and they eschewed very adamantly the label of being an anti-Semite. But of course, if you look closely, they weren't the only mistakes in history that they were looking at were the supposed mistakes of the Holocaust. The only mistakes in history that they were examining were what they claimed were the supposed mistakes of the Holocaust. Uh-huh. And then they did something else. They um, by misquoting, by half quoting, by quoting out of context, uh, they used what looked like scholarly, legitimate scholarly sources of study on the Holocaust um, to prove their point, to legitimize their point, um, yeah. so that they would quote from Raoul Hilberg's work. Uh, uh-huh. They would quote from other prominent scholars' work, but they take it out of context. They Uh half quote. Um, Uh And if you weren't aware of what they were doing, or if you didn't know that the Holocaust was the best documented genocide in the world, you might say, well, and this is what happened. Many people said this. Well, there certainly was a Holocaust. This wasn't made up, but maybe they have a point. Yes, there certainly was a Holocaust, but maybe there really weren't gas chambers. Yes, there was a Holocaust, but maybe Hitler really was against it or things like that, the Mm -hmm. yes, but phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, But at its heart, it really was a form of anti-Semitism and is a form of anti-Semitism. Do you feel similarly about um, reaction to to scholarly critiques? For example, uh, Peter Novick's uh, claim that uh, American Judaism had sacralized the Holocaust. In your view, is that a, is that a, a, at its base an anti-Semitic response to uh, the emergence of the Holocaust as something foremost in American and American Jewish con- consciousness, or is it simply uh, a, a, a protest against the emphasis of that event as a basis for contemporary Jewish identity? I think Peter Novick got it completely wrong. I don't claim he's an anti-Semite. I would never say that. I've met the man and. Uh, you know, I have no no reason to say that at all. Um, but I do think his analysis is completely wrong. First of all, he starts with the premise that there was no mention of the Holocaust till 1967 when a group. I mean, here it's almost like he adopted an anti-Semitic trope, I think, without being aware. May, he was a very smart man, so I don't I can't. Right. But it seems strange to say without being aware of it, but maybe he didn't realize it. He, by saying that uh, Jewish organizations, particularly the American Jewish Committee, uh, sat down and decided that the way to keep American Jews identified with, young American Jews identified with the Jewish community was to, and to keep them from intermarrying, was to raise the specter of anti-Semitism and raise the specter of the Holocaust, and that would keep them committed and keep them supporting Israel and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, his premise that there was no attention to the Holocaust before that, it was wrong. Um, There was attention. There wasn't as much attention as there was after 67 and by the late 60s and and into the 70s. Clearly, there was much more, but there had been attention, certainly. Um, You can just look at the introduction to Elie Wiesel's 
uh, the preface to Elie Wiesel's Night by Muriac, uh, the great French yeah. literary uh, person uh, mm-hmm. personage. Um, and he talks, he, he describes Elie Wiesel's Night as saying, by saying, and I hear I paraphrase, this memoir coming as it does after so many others, and then goes on to talk mm-hmm. about why it's different. You had Anne Frank, which had the, the Diary, which was a bestseller, the play, which won a Pulitzer, the right. film. Uh, you had Exodus, which broke all box office records, you know. Yeah. Uh, maybe that may be an exaggeration, but certainly was a big, big uh, Hollywood hit. Um, you had many different things, uh, right. so that it wasn't as if there was nothing, and then suddenly, boom, there was the Holocaust. You know, interest in the Holocaust because these group of uh, wise old men decided. Um, so I think he's wrong on that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I think he's also uh, wrong on other things. Yes, there was, and at times, uh, some of us, even the, some of us who worked and studied the Holocaust, cringed a little bit about the. Uh, emphasis on the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and to, and I wrote about that. I, I took a lot of flack for writing about that. I wrote about that in 76, 77, something like that, mm-hmm. um, where sometimes the Holocaust was used as a way of saying, you know, be Jewish, do more Jewish, uh, observe more Jewish tradition. Right. I acknowledge that. There, right. there were problems. I'm not saying it was all perfect and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I think he overstates the case. You, and I think he also misses out on, and that's why I laid out those three, point, those three areas earlier, the third area, on the um, great Jewish revival and Jewish learning and Jewish living yes. in different ways. You know, as exemplified, I'm going to use a, a, a lighthearted book, but still as exemplified by the Jewish catalog. Mm-hmm. When the Jewish catalog was published, I think it was in 1974 or something like that, Jewish Publication Society, which was the original publisher, published, I think, 8,000 or 10,000 copies, which was an, an enormous, enormous run for them of a book. And it sold out within two weeks. They were yeah. scrambling to publish more. It was Hanukkah time, and they wanted a, people wanted it as a Hanukkah gift. Because it was how to live Jewishly, how to do Jewish, how to how to build the sukkah, even if you were not the least bit religious person. Or you handy. Know, or handy. Right? <laughs> Very well said. Um, so, but let's not play the stereotype. Right, um, right. Um, and, you know, the, so he, he didn't have any sense of that. You know, the, the um, Jewish tradition says if you want to know, um, I think the Talmud says this at one point, if you want to know how to make, a, what the law, what the halakha should be, what the uh, Jewish law should be, for lack of a better term, in terms of observance, go out and see what the people are doing. That's right. a big, don't make, don't make something, don't impose something that's going to be too hard or the people aren't going to do. That's right. So he, I don't think he ever went out and saw what the community was doing. He was great at archival research, but he didn't see that. The other, I think, shortcoming, uh, and where I really take issue with him primarily in my book, but more than anything else, is his argument that attention to the Holocaust sucks out attention to other genocides. That people say, oh, this is not, this is not as bad as the Holocaust. Wake me when it's a Holocaust. Right. Now, there are examples of that. That is true. There are examples where, you know, some 
American officials not wanting to get involved in Rwanda or not get wanting to get involved in um, the former Yugoslavia or things may have said, well, it's not really a genocide. But we also have even more examples, I would argue, where um, Americans, American political leaders, uh, Bill Clinton uh, and others, took action because they didn't want to be accused of the same thing that they were told and they saw that FDR was accused of, of mm-hmm. sitting silently by. Uh, right. So when uh, Bill Clinton finally agrees to a part, that NATO should bomb Kosovo in the former Yugoslavia, he says, as Elie Wiesel has taught us, uh, it doesn't have to, not everything has to be a Holocaust, I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing, for us to act. You know, um, and and if you look at Samantha Power's book, uh, A Problem from Hell, you know, Genocide in the 20th Century, she talks about the impact of the Holocaust in getting people to pay attention to genocide. Right. Um, so I think that that argument is a false argument and a wrong argument. Very good. Uh, so you talk uh, in the book uh, about the relationship between uh, history and memory between truth and commemoration. And you have a fascinating section in the book about uh, the formation of the United States uh, Holocaust uh, Museum and the process that gave birth to that institution and the attendant controversies. Could, could you talk a little bit about uh, your view of, of that period and that institutions and how those controversies, not just the institution, but the controversies surrounding it, influenced our understanding of the Holocaust. Uh, well, in uh, let me. The, the, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm a great fan of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I currently sit on the council. I've had presidential appointments from both Presidents Clinton and Obama uh, to to that council. I've chaired committees, so I, I'm, I'm not an unbiased observer. In fact, not only am I on the council now, but um, I worked as a consultant helping to create portions of the permanent exhibit or advise on portions of the permanent exhibit. And then I had a, a, a fellowship at one point to the uh, Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. So I'm probably the only person who worked as a consultant, had a fellowship, and was on the executive council of the museum. Okay, Having I'm definitely said, asking the right person. Right, well, or, or I have a biased view, but right. I think I, I certainly do have a perspective. Uh-huh. Um, one of the great debates, uh, Jimmy Carter was the one who called for the creation of some sort of memorial, um, what we weren't, you know, no one knew at the beginning it would be a museum, uh, to the Holocaust. And he did that right after a time when he was in particular should we say, hot water with American Jews for uh, arms sales that he had made to Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And he asked the person most qualified and, and the person behind whom most Jews could unite, Elie Wiesel, to chair this commission. But right away, uh, controversy broke out as to what it should memorialize. And um, Carter, the Carter White House latched on to a figure of 11 million uh, victims, Mm -hmm. 6 million Jews and 5 million non-Jews. Now, we don't have the time to go into the long history of this number, uh, but it's it's a ridiculous number. Even Peter Novick agrees that it makes no sense. Uh Um, It's a number that was created by Simon Wiesenthal out of thin air, not the 6 million, but the 5 million non-Jews, 
when he wanted to ensure, he thought this was the only way to get non-Jews to care about the Holocaust, to say, you two were victims. Not quite as many as uh, Jews, but you two were victims. Um, But the truth of the matter is, if you're going to count up all the civilians murdered by the Nazis, it's it's bigger than five million. Um, Some people say, well, it's three million um, Soviet POWs and a certain number of uh, Polish civilians. But the Soviets were POWs. If you're going to count the Soviet POWs, you've got to count all the other POWs. It makes no sense. Right. Um, and uh, Wiesenthal only stopped talking about it when he was confronted by two very prominent Israeli historians whom he respected, uh, Yehuda Bauer and Yisrael Gutman. And they said to him, what is this? He said, I made it up. And he stopped doing it. Uh-huh. But it was too late. It had right. been adopted and it still remains adopted. I have to tell you, many times I appear on television, radio, in different parts of the world, and I talk about the six million, and I'm I'm berated by people who call up or send emails or whatever it might be uh, for being Judeo-centric, you know, not worrying mm-hmm. about the non-Jewish victims. Mm-hmm. It's not to say there weren't non-Jewish victims of the Nazis. There were not non-Jewish victims who died in horrible, horrible way. Um, but there, there was no other group, with the p- possible exception of the gypsies, of the Roma and the Sinti. We shouldn't use the term gypsies. But the Roma and the Sinti, we call, many people call gypsies, um, right. to wipe out an entire people. Yeah. Um, and uh, when you, if you throw, you, there wasn't an attempt to wipe out all gays. They, they persecuted horribly uh, uh, gay, male, male uh, homosexuals in Germany because they weren't producing children for the fatherland. Right. Um, but uh, but they weren't going after homosexuals in in other places because they could care less about, you know, they were happy they weren't producing more little poles or things like that. Right. right. Um, would I have wanted to be a homosexual in 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 uh, Nazi Germany? Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and they did this with others as well. But there was it was only with the Jews a that uh, there was an attempt to wipe out an entire people. Mm-hmm. And B, had the Nazis won, had the Germans won, many historians now agree on this, it's pretty clear that they would have wiped out lots of peoples in right. in Europe. Uh, right. Useless eaters, you know, people who were, they might have left a very slim, uh, small population of the Ukraine, of the Soviet um, USSR, mm-hmm. um, etc., to produce food for Germany. Um, right. But only in the case of the Jews... Could it not wait till after the war? Even with the gypsies, they wiped out nomadic. They went after nomadic gypsies, but settled gypsies, they, uh, Roman Sinti, I keep slipping on that. Um, Roman Sinti, they would, would have waited. They probably would have eventually wiped them out, but mm-hmm. that could wait. Right. Um, so I think, and that became a major controversy between uh, Wiesel and Carter, Eventually, Wiesel won because he stayed around a whole lot longer than, than Carter did as president. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But who was the museum going to commemorate? What was it going to commemorate? And it does commemorate the medical experimentations that, of course, many majority of which were on non-Jews, non-Jewish Germans, and, of course, Jewish Germans as well. It yeah. commemorates what, what happened to the Roma and the Sinti, but it's very clear that you're talking about the attempt to wipe out an entire people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that became one of the uh, controversies. Um, I think what's, what's very powerful 
today and showing the evolution of America's understanding of the Holocaust is that the USHMM has become one of the places that speaks out so clearly on genocidal attempts in other parts of the world, right. uh, with its uh, Center for Genocide uh, uh, Studies, that's the wrong term, but I'm blocking on the term, it was once called the Committee on Conscience. Um, but it does amazing work on uh, genocides and genocide-like activities in various parts of the world, and um, it does it under the guise of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Okay. My final question for you is uh, is about... The, the resurgence in the United States in the very recent past of in, of anti-Semitic incidents. Mm-hmm. How, how do we make sense of this uh, in light of the scholarship that you and others have produced about the Holocaust, about the roots of anti-Semitism? What light uh, can your work, and this book in particular, shed for us and help us make sense of um, out of what we're seeing um, only in the last few months, really. Mm-hmm. Well, if you could see me, you would see I w- I'm smiling a sort of ironic or maybe sardonic smile because, A, my next book is exactly on that topic, on contemporary okay. anti-Semitism. So uh-huh. uh, we've got a date. You can come back and interview me once that comes out and probably next year sometime. Um, I'm just finishing it up. But, um, you know, again, your your question, while legitimate question about how can we make sense of it in light of the scholarship, those people who are engaging in anti-Semitism are not sitting in the library or on their Kindles reading our scholarship. Right. Um, you know, anti-Semitism is a prejudice. Think about the etymology of the word prejudice, prejudge. I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. Whether you're talking about racism, you're talking about sexism, you're talking about homophobia, whatever it is, um, it's a, and, and anti-Semitism is one of those prejudices. Um, what's, we've seen it a lot from the political left. Not everyone on the political left, and, and, and I don't want to be, you know, skewering people or, or with a, with a, or condemning people with a broad brush. Heck no. But there have been elements, um, on, coming from the political left, um, who have argued that, oh, anytime they engage in, when they, when they engage in anti-Semitism and you call them on it, they'll say, oh, you're just doing that to stop us from criticizing Israel, even if Israel has nothing to do with the conversation. But now we're seeing it from the political right, too. It has felt very emboldened, and in part, I think, by what happened during the uh, presidential campaign in the United States, the recent presidential campaign, and in part by what we've seen coming out of the White House um, with the 2017 Holocaust Remembrance Day resolution, which didn't mention Jews, and um, the three or four attempts afterwards to justify that by presidential spokespeople, by the president's refusal, President Trump's refusal to condemn anti-Semitism until finally after he made a visit to uh, the Museum of African American History and Culture. And then he he finally said something in a very scripted, but, you know, it was a softball. He could have condemned it very easily. Right. and I think those kind of things, I'm not accusing him or in, in the administration of people being anti-Semitic, not at all. But I think this failure to condemn, whether it's a dog whistle, whether it's wink, wink, wink to um, his more far right wing supporters, I'm not sure. Um, and the, similarly with racism and other things as well. 
Um, but it's a very disturbing development. And those on the right, not just in the United States, but of course we're talking about the United States, yes. are feeling quite emboldened. And it's a disturbing phenomenon. And, and let me say in closing that I have always been one of those, and even in this book I'm going to caution against that, who have cautioned Jews against um, uh, seeing anti-Semitism where it isn't there, seeing Holocaust denial where it isn't, uh, not because you want to gin up, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're making things up, but sometimes out of fear um, and saying, look, we have to be careful. We can't yell, dear me, the sky is falling because when it's really falling, people won't pay attention. Well, for the first time point. in a, for the first time in a long time, I don't think the sky is falling, but I'm, but I'm looking up in the heavens to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very important point and a good one to close on. Um, Professor Deborah Lipstadt is the author of Holocaust, an American Understanding, published by Rutgers University Press. Professor Lipstadt, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.